This is Claiming Your Voice with Janice Garrard. In this podcast, I feature guests with passionate stories of hope, inspiring others to claim their voice in a world where we can be bold together. Today, my guest is Fred Nicora, who is a late discovery adoptee. He's had a career in education, architecture, business, entrepreneurship, and he also raises Dexter cattle. Fred also has an online bread store called Fred's Bread Store, and you can reach him at fredsbreadstore.com, and his Forbidden Roots website is frednicora.com. That is quite a, a lengthy resume, Fred. Wow, lots of experiences. Thank you for being a guest today, and without further uh, delay, I'm just going to let you jump right in and tell us about your adoption story. Great. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here, Janice. I, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to let my voice be heard. Um, I know that's a passion of yours, and um, I, I've got some things to say, and I'm, I'm glad you're allowing for a platform to do that. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. I, um, I have had quite a few careers, and, and I can tie some of that into what I call a long time, forever searching restlessness of trying to figure out what wasn't quite right in my life. Um, I am a late discovery adoptee, and um, by definition, that just means a person that found out they were adopted later in life. Um, you know, many people in, in today's current trends would suggest and philosophies would suggest, you know, that adoptees, as they grow up, um, are given the information. Um, and really today, the official kind of buzzwords that surround the entire process are transparency um, and truth. Um, it, it really means that, you know, if we are open, honest, and everybody's okay with what's going on, we really shouldn't have a layer of shame put in there. You know, I think in the past, the, there were many who used to believe that children were a tabula rasa, they came as a blank slate, um, and that they could just be kind of programmed into, you know, whatever um, that, that family chose to uh, instill within them, you know, their, their own family story. And I think as time's gone on, um, it's been brought to light that that really hasn't worked very well, that, you know, if, if you get into that nature versus nurture argument, and what I, I would say with myself, I, I did work 20 years in education. Um, so I had a lot of experience looking at, you know, human development and, and how that worked. And um, it's kind of interesting because over the course of time, it regardless of my story as a late discovery adoptee, you know, I can pretty well say that I, I turned full circle. Instead of believing that we were mostly a nurture-based creature, that nature was a part of it, that actually, you know, as I kind of worked with kids, watched them develop, and I did do both middle and high school, so really worked with them over the continuum of anywhere from 12 years old all the way up through 19 years old, um, saw that actually, you know, th there's a lot more to be said for the the nature side. That is, people come as what I'd call a package, and we have the ability to modify that package. But to some extent, we are going to have certain drives, certain interests, certain characteristics that are unique to who we are, um, and that makes up who we are. Mm -hmm. um, and so as I, you know, look back at the history of adoption and look at the stories of people that um, were put into homes uh, of well-meaning parents that did really a, a fundamentally good job, um, but chose not to hold um, or expose the truth of that story to that child. 
you know, that probably wasn't the best direction to go. And that, that would be my case. Um, I grew up in what I actually, first of all, I was born uh, and raised in the Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin metropolitan area in a suburb called Wauwatosa, pretty nice suburb. Um, grew up in what I'd call a, a pretty solid middle-class environment. Um, was no different than many other kids, except for, I would say that underlying struggle that I had, which was identity, trying to understand um, what wasn't quite fitting in my life. Now, many kids have that. Um, and what I would say is, and as I've gotten to know many other adoptees over the course of the last 20 years since I discovered, uh, that's a common theme. And as I read some of the current literature on adoption, um, there's reasons for it. Um, there, there's something called the primal wound that is believed occurs at birth. Uh, the infant is coming out ready to bond with everything they've learned about who their mother is initially. And that has to do with sounds that they hear within the womb. That has to do with chemical patterns, smells, um, virtually everything. They're looking to bond with that when they come out. That's genetically what we're programmed to do. Um, unfortunately, when uh, a baby is relinquished, um, that bonding doesn't occur in most cases, and, and there's a wound that occurs. A subsequent trauma happens, and that trauma then uh, manifests itself in certain characteristics. One of those is um, a searching, uh, a failure to really kind of um, understand identity, and, and I'm not going to say fail those steps of development, but those steps of development are significantly altered for mm -hmm. many adopters. So would you say that it's kind of like you you knew something was different or something was wrong, but you just couldn't put your finger on it, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good way to put it. Um, uh, I, as I grew up, I knew something was wrong. You know, once I even became an adult and, and tried to assimilate my adult life, uh, even then I, I knew something was wrong. It, it gets really interesting in October of 2000, um, I, I was struggling. I, I lived pretty close to Lake Michigan. I was uh, doing a beach walk late at night, um, really in what I'd call a, a fairly emotional state, um, and made a cry out to God, help me. I, you know, what is wrong? Why can't I put my finger on what's going on in my life? And interestingly enough, two days later, I was at a large family gathering of twin uncles. Uh, my parents had already passed. And while I was off getting uh, some beverages for us at the bar, um, I came back and my wife looked at me um, and she had a very curious look on her face and she asked me and she pointed to a, an older woman and said, is that Alice? And I knew what she meant by it because Alice was known to get things fairly confused. Um, she struggled with issues through a lot of her life and um, everybody knew that Alice couldn't be taken fully seriously. I said, no, that that's actually um, Lorraine. And and I said, why? And she said, she's just said she's known you since the day you were adopted. And I said, what? And this was in front of 300 people that already knew I was adopted. I was the only one that didn't have a conscious awareness of it. Um, so needless to say, it was a, a very strong foundation to underpinning. My foundation was swept away um, realistically. I I struggled with truth, I struggled with trust, I struggled with a lot um, immediately after that and just trying to figure out um, who I was, where I came from. At the same time, I'm gonna say, while none of it made sense, it all made sense. 
Mm -hmm. that long question of what is wrong what's not right in my life because I can look back you know and you you just read off kind of a litany of careers that I've had and most of those occurred pre-adoption discovery I was always trying to figure out what isn't right you know is it my career is it where I live I moved all over the place I you know struggled in relationships with permanency um, it just was something that um, I, I did struggle with through a lot of my life and so when that revelation occurred when when I suddenly became aware that I was adopted a lot did make sense however there was a lot to be discovered at that point too as I mentioned my foundation was literally swept away um, yeah, everything that you grew up believing was not true <laughs> so it was built your your truth was basically built up on falsehoods um were you raised with siblings no i was not i was raised as an only child and um you know it's interesting and again i i want to emphasize that my parents were very kind to me they provided a very good home for me they were loving um i don't i don't look at them as bad people and i'm going to say a lot of late discovery adoptee struggle with that that that's mm -hmm. something that many people struggle with you know I've got I parented three children myself I've got three um, adult children uh, ranging roughly from 30 down to 25 and I have made so many mistakes it's not even funny you know I can look back at it look back at the experience know that I did the best I could they don't come with manuals you you, you start swinging from the moment they're out you know and you make decisions those decisions are things that um, you base future decisions on, and I think my parents made that decision early on that um, I, I wasn't going to know. Uh, they followed uh, a philosophy of the time. It wasn't the majority of, how would I say it? The, the main philosophy was about telling the child at an age-appropriate time. Um, as time went on, they kind of even backed off from age-appropriate time because a lot of people would say, is that 11? Is that 15? Is that when they turn into an adult? Um, and that now basically is as soon as they're starting to acquire linguistics, the belief is start to integrate that into their, what they're hearing, what they're becoming aware of. Um, you know, the idea there is it'll help really reduce any you know potential shame because there is an underlying message of shame. If, if you're not going to tell somebody, if you're going to hold their truth from them, um, there, there's probably a good reason for that. You know, right. I, I would mm -hmm. say that, you know, History has proved that um, those given up, orphans, um, aren't always thought of in positive lights. Uh, everybody wants to have sympathy for an orphan until it turns 18 and then, you know, grow up. It's time you, mm -hmm. you got over it. You know, and, uh, or, or they want to have sympathy until uh, that child starts acting out and um, exactly. perhaps doing the normal things that teenagers do. But then there's those layers of complexity that go along with it, you know, with the identity uh, crisis or whatever. Um, so also on your website, I was reading your biography and you had stated that you had dealt with uh, some addiction issues. And would you like to talk about that? And sure, do, you, happy to. do you relate it to being adopted? Yeah, or maybe if, not if, knowing if, what was wrong, you know, <laughs> being able to identify that. Yeah, it's interesting, because when you start looking at the adopted population, there are certain characteristics. Um, of adoptees as a whole. I, I think it's roughly four times greater likelihood that they're gonna struggle with addiction and substance abuse than the general population. Roughly two to three times higher, they're gonna be uh, assigned a mental health diagnosis over the course of their life. 
um, roughly two times more likely to be in counseling at some point over the course of their life. So obviously, mental health issues are an issue for the adopted population. You know, we could get into reasons why. I think I outlined some of the current beliefs on that with the primal wound earlier. Um, many of the, the symptomatic results of, you know, what's believed to be the outcome of that um, are, are very similar to PTSD. Um, the big difference in treatment of PTSD versus what is currently, I'll say, not officially called, but is to some extent a developmental trauma disorder, um, is there's no pre-personality to try and revert the person back to. It happened when they were born. Um, so there, there's a bit of a, a struggle there. One of the symptoms of PTSD is uh, alcohol and uh, drug abuse. Um, and, and that's just plain fact. I mean, it, it's something that happens. Now, for myself, um, you can, and I went through treatment. Um, my, I'll say my, my alcoholism bloomed um, about six to seven years after I found out. Um, honestly, I didn't have any good spiritual tools in place going into it. Uh, my, my head's up to anybody who, who's skating through life thinking like, eh, you know, it, it's all right. I don't really need to um, tend to my spiritual needs. Um, be aware, you know, you hit some big major roadblock. And if, if it's not there, um, you've suddenly limited yourself on your palate for, for what you can use to try and help you work through that. Um, and that was a hard lesson learned for me. That was a very hard lesson. I, I tended, once I found out, my drinking went up exponentially um, as I kind of worked through a lot of different things. I did go into counseling fairly soon after it, um, saw a, a variety of counselors, um, did end up coming to terms with alcoholism, did go through an outpatient treatment program. I'm sober about 13, a little over 13 years now. Um, so it, it's been a journey, um, you know, and the alcoholism, is it because I found out I was adopted? I'm, I'm going to say no. I, I think I also believe there's a certain genetic package that um, allows certain people to be predisposed to it. Um, and and I'm, I'm certain I have that. Um, at the same time, I'm going to say um, it was that that lack of spiritual fitness at the time of finding out that I'd say facilitated and allowed the alcoholism really to take root and manifest itself uh, in full addiction. So, um, you know, I, after I found out, um, my, my immediate course of action was trying to replace the foundation. I wanted to know who I was, where I came from. Um, and I'm gonna say like most non-adopted people, I didn't understand adoption laws. I didn't understand the ramifications of being adopted. I didn't understand that there are separate laws of record access for those that are adopted versus the general population. So I found out on a Sunday, Monday, I called the state of Wisconsin to find out, uh, first of all, because I had lost a lot of trust at that point, um, I was looking for confirmation. Was I adopted or, or was this some big misunderstanding? Um, and then secondly, if I'm adopted, where did I come from? Where was I born? Who was I born to? Um, and I found out very quickly, the state educated me that yes, they could confirm I was adopted, um, but unlike the rest of the population, I didn't have legal access to my, my birth records, any of my vital records or any information like that. Um, that was something that, that ownership was actually owned by another person. Um, and 
<laughs> I know. I, I saw you kind of take note of that, but <laughs> but the reality of is the ownership of that is owned by the birth mother. Even though I was 41, she still was the one that could either grant permission for me finding out who I was or not. So in Wisconsin, the process was I needed to first apply, and, and everything takes money and time. Um, I needed first to apply to the state to get a copy of my redacted uh, file, which uh, summarized the process under which I was adopted. It was basically the social worker's notes uh, going through the process with my birth mother, then later uh, meeting with my um, adopted parents. Uh, but everything was redacted, you know, um, nothing that could identify me. So, you know, if if you look at it, it was it, it read, you know, blank is was born to blank and blank in the year blank and blank, you know, there, there was a lot more missing than there was there. I mean, I will say it provided some information. It provided the interpretation of the social worker in terms of, of an overall description of who the woman that gave birth to me was. Um, it, it provided a, you know, an overall setting that she had siblings that um, she was a teacher at the time that she gave me up. They did tell me she was 22 at the time she gave me up. Um, but once I received that, then I, um, the process in Wisconsin was to write a letter um, to my birth mother explaining who I was and why I wanted to find out who I was. And that was then turned over to the state of Wisconsin, who would then in turn read it to her via a phone call. Um, if she chose to release my identity, um, I could I could find out who I was. I would uh, be able to contact her if I chose. Um, if she did not, I had to wait five years before I could apply again. Um, if at that point she denied me, um, it was terminal. I wasn't allowed to apply um, to, to find out who I was anymore. So that's why I say, you know, the, the laws surrounding adoption and for those that are adopted are different than the general population. So as an LDA, probably one of my biggest shocks was, wow, that that I don't, I'm not who I thought I was. And um, I'll say the state kind of put me in my place and helped me to understand that um, I, I don't enjoy the same rights that the rest of the population does. So yeah. it was all kind of a check. Um, she did grant me permission. I did get to meet her. Um, we had a relationship. I'm going to say, um, and I was just, I, I did a social media post on it today. Uh, probably the, the, the strongest thing that came out of that relationship, um, she carried a tremendous burden of shame. You know, back in 1958, when I was conceived, I was born in 1959. Um, unwed pregnant women were considered shameful creatures. Um, in essence, the laws were created to allow them to move on in their life. Um, so she went away to a home, um, you know, basically a, an unwed mother's home. And uh, it was kind of a work wage home, uh, which was close to the hospital where I was born um, until she gave birth. Then, you know, after a short recovery period, she returned back to her hometown, back to her house um, and instructed to forget about it and tell everybody she'd been in Europe for six months. You know, that's a hard thing to do. You know, so I think part of what I looked at was um, she had a tremendous amount of shame she carried through life. Um, she subsequently married after she had me. Uh, and she told me, had I come forward three to four years earlier while her husband was still alive, she would not have released my identity because there was no way he was going to find out that she had a baby before they were married. Um, that was just something she couldn't bear. She didn't want her community to know that. Um, so even after we we reunited, 
and I'm going to say she was kind. Um, she was nice. She was helpful uh, in her own way. I would say she was loving. Um, but at the same time, I'm going to say the premise of our relationship is nobody must know that she's my mother. Um, and for instance, when we'd meet, um, I was to go in the back door of restaurants, sit at a table. She would come in the front door, find me. She didn't want us to be seen walking in together. Um, I wasn't allowed to go to her funeral. She was afraid people would figure it out. So I say that not to, to guard, you know, try and get sympathy for me. I say it because the shame of that woman that she carried to her grave was crushing, you know, and it, it, it didn't need to be there. If you start looking at what reinforced that, well, even the whole process of me coming to try and find her reinforced that, yeah, you were through a shameful, you know, event in your life and, and you have a right to not acknowledge that today and, and you know, pretend, be totally severed from this person that you gave birth to. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate she didn't. A lot of people out there, they get denied, but um, there, are, there are new tools. You know, it's kind of interesting. We live in a, a society today where DNA testing <laughs> reveals a whole lot, you know, and um, a lot of people are finding out a lot of information, regardless of, you know, whether they're granted permission to access their identity or not. So what about uh, your biological father? Did she discuss that with you? She did, you know, and um, it's interesting because, you know, we, we spoke initially on the phone. Um, we, uh, you know, I asked her if I, if she'd be willing to let me come and meet her. And she, she said, yes, she would like that. Um, I think she was very curious. She told me, she goes, you know, every year when your birthday came around, I, I always wondered if you were alive. I wondered if you're ever going to pursue trying to find me. I, I just didn't know. Um, so I think she was relieved. Um, you could tell that, you know, at a, a level, and, and I'm going to say, as I went through that redacted social work file, she struggled at the end to give up her baby, but she didn't feel she had a choice. She didn't know what else she could do. Um, her, you know, her, her family was not, her family wanted her to give it up, you know, move on with life, you know, get on with it. Um, her community wasn't, she was a teacher at the time, you know, teaching, I'll say, you know, can hold a, a standard um, of moral and ethnic behavior or ethic be, ethical behavior okay. that, you know, um, at that time being an unwed mother um, would not have cleared, you know, the litmus test. It, it would not have been considered that that would have been a moral person that would have gotten themselves in that situation. You know, I mean, obviously I feel differently. I, I think society has um, come around a lot in many regards. I think the laws just need to catch up. You know, I look at some of the adoptions done today, and they are awesome and amazing. Um, I I work as a, a men's group leader at uh, a church that I belong to, and uh, one of the members of my group just went through an adoption. Um, he and his wife had one child on their own. She had complications at birth. They couldn't have any more. They wanted to have more children. They became very educated on adoption. Um, it's an open adoption. Um the mother gave birth. They actually went down uh, to the hospital where she gave birth. Uh, the baby spent the first week um, transitioning from her to them, you know, so it allowed for a smoother bonding transition. Um, they, they have a photo album of the mother's family. They intend to, you know, keep the baby informed about where its roots are, um, who that baby is, but yet embrace the child and, and nurture it as it grows, you know, and that's, that's really what adoption should be about. It, it shouldn't be about 
trying to fulfill, I'm going to say, the wound of not being able to conceive on your own and pretend that this baby can just do that, that's an impossible job. I mean, think about it, to try and be the salvation of not being able to conceive your own children. You know, adoption, I think, if from my standpoint, should be held, actually, I'll say even in higher regard, being a, an adopted parent than being a birth parent. Don't get me wrong. I, I you know, I'm a, a, a parent of natural children, and, and it's a hard enough job the way it is. And, um, you know, I've come to really appreciate it. But, um, you know, those that choose to adopt, you know, I think should receive some education that, you know, this this is an independent entity. Um, many adoptions struggle and fail just because uh, expectations are that that baby is just going to fall in line with family expectations and become who that family is. And most of the time, that's kind of an impossible thing for a person to do, especially as they're growing up. So I would tend to agree with you on that because I think it's important for that child to be allowed to have its own um, identity uh, from their own family lineage, no matter what that may be, you know? Yes. So. You know, there's a lot of, um, and it's interesting, today's, um, I'll say, mosaic tapestry of what's out there in adoption. Um, there's obviously a lot of international adoptions where, you know, babies don't look anything like their parents. And, you know, if, if you don't tell them, they're going to figure it out pretty quick. Right. <laughs> there's no hiding it um you know there's there's interracial adoptions and today the the thing that's really kind of blossoming and blooming are the adoptions that came the result of intro vitro you know fertilization mm -hmm. where, right. where there's been a sperm donor or an egg donor or you know however that's transpired um you know those people are coming out and they're they're bumping into the adoption laws is what's happening because they're coming out saying well well, who am I? You know, where did I come from? Right. You know, and, and the same laws that govern um, the confidentiality surrounding adoption govern the confidentiality surrounding their, their birth records as well. So um, the mass is growing. And, um, you, you know, I think laws need to catch up. You know, there's um, it, it, it. It's a bit problematic, I would say. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. A lot of those laws are a little bit archaic. Um or a lot archaic, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you then, do you feel now at this point in your life, do you feel like you are more getting on that pathway to being more complete, being more satisfied, knowing who you are, more comfortable with who Fred is? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. You can, you know, we talked about my career paths um, before and is it only because I found out I was adopted? It's hard to say. Interestingly enough, before that, I was in a career and a job, maybe two to three years at a shot before I, I knew I had to change something. Once I found out, I, I held that job for 20 years. You know, um, I, I did change out of that eventually um, and eventually evolved into having my own business and then, um, you know, publishing the book. Uh, a little bit about the book, and because and, now is actually probably a, a good time to explain that. Um, I originally wrote the book um, about six years post-discovery. Um, I wrote probably 98% of it then. Um, shortly after that, I came to terms with my alcoholism. Um, I went through the recovery period. During the recovery period, I did have to pull back a little bit from um, being immersed in the adoption community because mm -hmm. I, I needed to focus on 
how to minimize triggers uh, and not, you know, not drink. That was the goal. And, and um, for me, it was a strategy that worked. Um, about three years ago, I start, I came to terms with it. Um, emotionally, I was ready to release the book. Very transparent in the book. Um, I'm, I'm very open about the emotional struggles I was having at the time, what was all going on in my life. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it took me a while to get there emotionally. In answer to your original question, which is, you know, do I feel more whole today? I think that's the gist of it. Do I feel more satisfied, more complete? And I would definitely say yes. It, it's interesting. Just this morning, I posted on something. Um, my, my birth mother, um, you know, it, as I've outlined, um, our, our relationship was hindered by shame. Um, and I'm going to say, given who I am as an adoptee, um, her her hesitation, I took as rejection. So in addition to the primal rejection, I, I, I added a layer to it. Um, I think that hindered our relationship to an extent too. Um, it's interesting because she did tell me who my birth father was. Um, I think one of the, one of the complexities of our, my relationship with her, unfortunately, first thing she said when I appeared at her door and she saw me was, oh my God, you look like him. I think it was difficult for her. I think it was difficult having this man appear um, that looked like the guy that, from her perspective, screwed her over when she was young and then tried to establish a relationship aside from the fact that I looked like him and I was part of him. You know, I mean, I think that was another layer of complexity. Um, I, as a result, um, I, she did tell me who my birth father was. I researched him right away. I, I looked on the Social Security Death Index, found out he had died actually in 1993. Um, interestingly enough, a couple months apart from when my adoptive father died, they died pretty close at the same time. Um, <clears throat> a large part of the book is about that search for who he was, who his family was, and what I could find out about him, trying to put together that identity. It's interesting because, and this, I'll say, this has just come to me recently, um, because she, you know, I'll say that there were two reasons um, that I didn't search her family, didn't try to understand what I could about her family. One was she didn't want me to. She, she didn't want me knowing, you know, going down that path at all. But two, I'll say that that rejection I felt made me deny that part of me. Um, I didn't really pursue trying to find out much about her family. I did meet my half-sister um, and one of my half-brothers who died a short time after I met him. Um, so there, there was some connection there. But, you know, in terms of the rest of it, I, I really, I didn't pursue it on my biological father's side. I dug deep, you know, and he's from a very interesting family, goes way back to the mid 1600s in this country, all over the place, Revolutionary War, Civil War, uh, Mexican-American War. I mean, it, it, it's a fascinating, I actually have, my grandmother has two siblings who are in the Grand Old Opry Hall of Fame. There's a connection and it's, it's 23 generations removed. So it's not like I'm gonna call him up and say, hey, cuz, but I'm actually related to Obama, you know? and. So when I found that out, you know, it's kind of fascinating, you know. Um, so the book covers a lot of that. It, it covers the discovery of all these chapters. Um, and probably one of the strongest revelations I had while writing the book was my relationship to my great-great-grandfather really isn't any different than anybody else's. 
They were dead before both of us were born. But yet, why can't I honor him? Why can't I get to know who he was? Why can't I, you know, honor his gravesite? You know, honor who he was. Um, try and even learn from, you know, some of the lessons he may have taught me. My great great grandfather fought. Actually, it's real. That family is so interesting because they they weaved in and out of the north and the south. So I literally had cousins fighting against each other in the Civil War. You know, I mean, just obviously distant cousins, but some were on the north, some were on the south. My great great grandfather um, was actually on the north, and then after he returned, um, went back to their family farm. My my biological father was raised on that family farm in northern Missouri. You know, um, so I I found all that stuff out. I actually um, went down, uh, met his half brother, uh, who I have a great relationship with. Um, and uh, got a lot of his old belongings. Um, uh, and and I, I don't know if I want to spoil the book, but a lot of it is about coming to resolution with that, you know, and, and how I did that. Um, my mother, I didn't do the same for, you know, until about a week ago. All of a sudden, I found a, a website, Find a Grave, mm -hmm. and I just dove deep. And I have since... Um, found out, you know, basically, you know, her family, uh, a branch came over from Norway um, in, in the late 1700s. They were one of the first Norwegian families of that region to settle in America. They settled in Wisconsin, in um, uh, North Cape, Wisconsin. Uh, I, my, I, as you know, I, I just saw my son because we had a little bit of a car crisis. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just talking to him about it. And there's a cemetery down there that has three generations of that family um, buried and um, not too far from it. That's on my uh, biological mother's mother's side. Um, on her father's side, within, I, I'm going to say a five minute drive, there's three generations of that side buried. So um, we're planning a family field trip. We're, we're going to go check it out, you know, see the grave sites, you know. Um, it's the first time I really started embracing her side of the family, you know, and um, that part of me, because it is part of me. Um, you know, I think that's wonderful. So to add to, um, we're about out of time on this, but just to add to my question, you know, about feeling complete, it sounds like um, you are making it complete. So that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah the, the, the summary statement on my uh, web posting today was, um, I no longer feel like I have forbidden roots. They're, they're, they're my roots now. They're not forbidden anymore. So part two, you're going to have to write a new book. Maybe <laughs> it's called Roots Restored then, right? So Well, I'm, you know, it's already in the making. Um, and um, I, I think what I'm going to, because I went down one path. I was going to do it on the uh, dive into alcoholism and then the recovery. Uh, um, because that that's what allowed my spiritual awakening. That's what allowed me to invest in um you know, reclaiming my relationship, I'll say with God, you know, um, of getting over the anger that I had with him. It wasn't very bright on my part, but it, it's a reality, you know. Um, but now what I've come to terms with, I think what I'm going to do is it, it's going to be called Forbidden Roots Revelations. Um, just I, I've, I'm learning a lot as I, you know, engage in the adoptee community. And I'll say one of the biggest things I'm learning I used to think being a late discovery adoptee made me different than the rest of the adoptees out there. That's not true. Um, we're, we're, we're all, I actually feel more kinship with them than I do the half siblings I've met. Um, 
I didn't share any experiences of growing up with them. The, most of the adoption community, we grew up in similar environments. We get each other, you know, and um, so I feel very tied to them. And um, there's been a lot of revelations that have come through, I'll say, reading other memoirs, um, reading more and more on stories of adoptees out there, fascinating stories of resilience and growth. That's, that's you know, anybody that's looking to read a story about resilience and growth, go pick up a memoir of an adoptee. I mean, um, we tend to be a resilient people. Brad, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story. You bet. Thanks so much. We'll have you back again. Okay. I'd love that. I really would love that.